0: Welcome to Secrets to Selling Your Business, the podcast for entrepreneurs and business owners looking to unlock the secrets behind successful business transitions. Join our host, Jacob Koenig, a partner at Woodbridge International, as he gives you the knowledge to navigate complexities, embrace strategic shifts, and prepare you to sell your business with no regrets. At Woodbridge, we know how to give you the wisdom to achieve your ultimate success. And now, here's your host, Jacob Koenig.
1: All right, welcome to the show. Today I have Andy Gold from Bombadil, the president and founder of Bombadil. Uh, Andy and I actually work together uh, pretty closely, so um, we'll we'll be going into some things where I, I may know the answers already, and some where uh, where I'll be learning a bit more about uh, Andy's background. But Andy, welcome to the show. Hey, Jink, thanks for inviting me in for this
0: conversation. I'm glad to be here.
1: Absolutely. So why don't we kick it off with a, a bit of background? Could you tell us a bit, um, you know, in your journey? into the sales industry that led you to become a
0: strategic growth catalyst and sales educator? Yeah, I mean, it grew out of a personal experience. Um, From the age of 20, I just yearned to start a business. And when I was 30 years old, I saw an opportunity to do it. I'd been working for a packaging manufacturer and a small part of my my assignment was doing selling. And they moved from New Jersey, where I'm living, to Atlanta. They offered me a position, but I really didn't want to move. And so I proposed that I become a commissioned sales agent on a full-time basis, doing what I was doing on a part-time basis. And I had just gotten an MBA recently, and I wrote a 50-page business plan. And, you know, really important to any business is recurring revenue. And so I had one key account that was like 80% of my sales And I was counting on that, and I built my whole plan around that. Well, what happened is within a few months of starting the business, that customer, it was Michael's, you know, the craft people, They discontinued the item. I lost 80% of my sales. And instead of being in a situation where there was recurring revenue, I was scrambling for existence. Mm -hmm. And that was really the birth of this whole program. You know, necessity is the mother of invention. I had to do something. And so I started doing a lot of different behaviors and in in the end i came up with this framing it took me a while bold vision bold behavior bold vision bold behavior and so i worked on this for a number of years i had success i had like 10x growth once i figured out this formula and in 93 i hired a new accounting firm and they tried to sell me one of their high-end products cash flow planning and and after they did the presentation i said is this how you guys normally sell And they said, yes, it was pretty good, wasn't it? And I said, gee, I think it needed work. So I called them back, and they had seven partners, and I said to this one guy, Bert, you and your six partners need to hire me to teach you guys how to sell. And it it took a while, but they eventually hired me. And it was my first client. It was a CPA firm. During the time we worked together, their closing ratio went from 20 to 80%. Their problem was they were getting lots of leads from banks who wanted them to use the accounting firm, but they also gave them to three, four, five other people. And that's how I got into this business. My first client was a CPA firm. There you go. And so that was the start of Bombadil. Well, the urgency-based selling program. And I actually incorporated Bombadil. Bombadil a little bit later mm. but that was okay. really the start of the yeah. whole sales consulting thing which I I wound up doing it full-time since 2004. Understood. So can you share with us uh, the story behind how the urgency-based
1: selling evolved and, uh, and Bombadil was born?
0: Well what happened is I was in you now going back to this recurring revenue theme, I was in a couple of markets where I had very long runs where it it seemed like it was a forever product life cycle, and in one important case, my major clients went into self-manufacture for what they were buying from me, so my my business came to an end. And and here I had this, you know, this concept of sales training And so what I had been doing like on a part time basis, I shifted, um, to full time and I had a a couple of. Um, assignments that were like breakout assignments where there were big problems and I conceived really strong solutions. As if, for instance, one of them was a, a billing and collecting company for martial arts studios. They're like um, a 20% closing ratio. They were burning lead. And what I discovered in time is, and I've seen this over the last 20 years over and over again, salespeople tailor their presentation to the easiest to close a customer or prospect. And that's what was happening. And so I worked out a program. That that was much stronger, was challenging and they went from a 20 to 40% closing ratio. And then the real breakout assignment, very interesting, it was a company that sold ad pages and pharmaceutical companies to the brand managers, ad pages and physicians journals to the brand managers at pharmaceutical companies. And just like they have Nielsen ratings in TV, they have readership ratings um for journals. And they usually only put on an advertising schedule the companies that are like 1 to 10 and we were more like 10 to 20. So I figured out a radical change in their messaging, and that was the bold vision, and I married it to bold behavior. So at a time when sales were declining because of the shift to internet advertising, down 7% for all you know people in the industry, we had a 55% increase in sales. So that was a huge breakthrough assignment. I had a similar breakthrough assignment with an architectural firm. They had gone at the trough of the 2007 recession from a headcount of about 55 to 15, and I worked out a program for them. They're still using the messaging. They've told me that I worked out for them like 15 years ago and they now, they had 50% growth three years in a row. And now I think they have a head count of about 105. And so a common element here is finding a gap. We're finding gaps in vision and in gaps in behavior. People aren't bold enough. I mean, one of the things I started developing over the years, what we call bold behavior drills. Tell me the bold behavior that you did right. this week. So anyway, that's kind of like right. how with and um, the initial program, I, I've made over 5,000 sales calls. It was initially rooted in my personal practice, but now I've worked with over 170 companies and I validated it. It's the same program everywhere. Wonderful.
1: And so bold vision, bold behavior. Outside of that, are there other um, sort of key principles or strategies? That oh, sure. Can create, sure. Uh, um, especially for business owners and corporate leaders?
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean, here here's one of the things I've been developing for a couple of years, recurring revenue, recurring revenue and systems very often preclude selling. Recurring revenue so what makes us strong at the same time destroys us because it anesthetizes the whole organization. So a big part of what I do is I wake up an organization that has fallen asleep. Think about this. You have a sales team that spends 80-90% of their time calling on existing customers. And you're just saying, hey guys, hey gals, could you just call 10-20% of your time? Let's bring in some new customers. Well, I call this the two-hat problem. One hat is the hat you wear when you call on existing customers. The other hat is the hat you wear calling on new customers. Well, if you're in the habit of calling on existing customers, you tend to wear the same hat, metaphor for mindset, when you call on new customers. And what do you get? Train wreck, because there's an arrogance. So when you go back to this idea of what have I learned, you have to earn the right to every step of the process. You have to earn the right to everything. And what happens is, and they don't do it on purpose, very often salespeople get arrogant. They think they have they act as if they have coming something coming to them. Now, allied with that, and something we brought into Woodbridge is the idea of risk mitigation. The average salesperson is wearing the salesperson's hat, not the buyer's hat, right. and they don't deal with risk mitigation. So another important part of urgency-based selling, and one that we brought to Woodbridge, was this idea of risk mitigation. It became an important part of the management meeting training program. But it's bold behavior, bold vision, urgency do or die. Do or die versus best efforts is another key concept. So when I was a teenager, mom and dad said, hey, if you give it your your best efforts, we'll be happy. Well, when I started my first business, I quickly learned that if I gave it my best efforts, I was going to go bankrupt. That is do or die or nothing. Well, the average salesperson comes in thinking the best efforts is okay. So an important part of my work is, is, is getting the sales team to be comfortable with the idea of do or die. And then there's a relationship a distinction between social selling and business selling. So many salespeople, they want to make friends. They want to treat people and be treated like friends and family. Well, we're trying to create business relationships, right? Right. So if you come in and you want somebody to like you, what's one of the best ways you could get a buyer to like you? Cut your price. So we often can determine who's a social seller just right. by the kind of opportunity they bring in. Now you might say, well, which one is important, Andy? Is it social selling or is it business selling? That's what we call a tyranny of the oil. Sure. It's right. not social selling or business selling. It's social selling and business selling. So these are all core concepts that I developed over the years, and they seem to resonate with with uh, business owners and yeah. CEOs. Exactly. Now that's kind of like some of the
1: key ideas. Totally makes sense. Entrepreneurs always uh, do or die attitude. I think that's one of the key aspects and, and what we always see with our clients. Um, and that's a great transition because uh, you've been working now with Woodbridge um, for more than five years, helping coach uh, clients and, and business sellers how to best sell their companies. Um, Absolutely. Can you tell us a bit, yeah, about, about how that
0: partnership began? Well, I think it began with a discussion with Robert and other partners, maybe in, I don't know, 2017 or 18. Mm-hmm. And what happened is I was doing other assignments, including I was working with the marketing associates. Those are the folks who get the bids, you know. I was working with the marketing associates yep. and and there was conversation. I was parting to conversation. Oh, this deal blew up. Oh, this, this seller didn't know how to behave. And it was co- going on over and over again. And it was just kind of like an informal conversation. And I said, gee, I have an idea. Why don't we develop a program to teach people how to behave and instruct them in key ideas and then bring several business owners together and have them interact with each other. And I, I use my um, my Vistage experience for that. So I, I have been in Vistage and other peer groups since like, I don't know, 2010, so 13 years. And I've been a Vistage speaker, which means I present to Vistage groups. Now, what a Vistage group is, is it's a group of CEOs and owners typically who act as each other's board of directors. And in a Vistage typical meeting, the morning there'll be an education and the afternoon there's issue processing. And I really like that. And I learned from that experience that owners tend to like it. So I hypothesized that if we did this in the Woodbridge environment, that it would not only like enrich all of the owners, but they would enjoy the interaction. And so I, you know, I made this. Proposal and I I worked out the first round and a lot of people gave input and edited it and and we did the we did V one the first version the first version the first time we did it it was eight hours on on no four hours on day one and eight hours on day two it was twelve hours everybody came into Woodbridge and there were complaints it was too long and people wanted to cut it to one day but the thing that came out consistently was everybody had a great experience and learned something and when we did it the first time we didn't know where to do it in the timeline which as you know is 150 days now and so we did it about a month before management meetings not knowing when we should do it and the feedback that came out almost i think from the first session is wow this is great now we're going to go back and rewrite the sim right (laughs) now we're going to go back and and reshoot the marketing video so it was pretty obvious we were almost like out of marketing at that point we couldn't do it then and so we started moving it closer and closer to the beginning yeah and ultimately brought it to the point where okay. now we try to do it the first thing right because what we have discovered is that this is an immersive an immersive experience and by the discussion by the exercises by the breakouts mm. by the brainstorming i believe that our sellers our clients they access parts of their brain or memory right that otherwise they wouldn't access and we almost always get gold out of every session yeah. stuff that you know like nobody was thinking about mm. and then we turn over to the book writer that's the sim the confidential information memo and to our creative director mitch to create the marketing video and so a lot of things are going on in this mm-hmm. in this training that we do but that was how it began yeah. is just right. you know we did it once and we
1: didn't know yeah. we'd do it twice yeah, and, and over time it's it's morphed now you know during the pandemic into a full uh zoom focused uh, event and, and it's all virtual but uh back when it started it was all in person absolutely you know? but again, yeah. it's I think you still you still get that goal every time, and and that's something that it seems that we do. It's always been impressive um, from my perspective, and I'm curious to to hear more about what are some of the, the philosophical underpinnings that you try to impart onto business owners that that gets them into that mindset to get the to get those nuggets.
0: Well, I think the biggest issue we've consistently observed, and this is very reasonable, is the average seller comes into this whole process and the program thinking like a seller, and that's role appropriate because they're a seller. Yeah. And then we find that there's these discontinuities, and it's hard for them sometimes, not always, to see the buyer's perspective. And we developed the theme that if they could think like a buyer, two important things happen. The first thing that happens is they tend to stand out stand out from the pack. Right away, the buyer can think to him or herself, wow, these people get us. There's alignment here. And then, pursuant to that, we get more bids and higher bids, because it's it looks like a better fit. So let me give you an example, because this is pretty abstract stuff. Let's say you're a manufacturer and you have a machine and this machine costs half a million dollars and this machine is humming like a top it's 15 years old but we've done our preventative maintenance and it's in great shape in our mind as a seller that machine that machine gets full credit that machine is great that's seller's perspective now let's look at buyer's perspective oh let's see gee this machine is beyond its useful life i'm gonna have to write a check for half a million dollars to buy a new machine well what does that mean there aren't separate checkbooks here's what i'm going to pay the seller and here's what i'm going to pay to replace old equipment there's one checkbook. so what happens is they got to ding the buyer the seller they got to ding the seller they half a million so that's an example of the difference between seller's perspective and buyer's perspective here's another important one we as a seller know there's no risk in our business we had a risk-free business but the buyer looks at it and they see potholes all over the place so we orient the, the seller to what these issues are because each of these dangers like like, is there going to be recurring revenue? Do we have a defendable position? Do we have an uncontested position? If we can't establish that, the buyer is going to reduce the, the, the selling price and or make payouts into the future as risk mitigants. So what we want to do is we want to show the greatest value right now so that our seller, our client, gets the most money, cares on the drum head right now. And that's really what management meeting training is about. Yeah, I mean, here, this is
1: the the secrets to selling your business podcast. So this is all definitely uh, useful information, I think, for any any business owner. Um, you know, we talked already also about the, the tyranny of the ore as another philosophical underpinning, and one that we talked about as well is uh, not on the show, but outside of the show is uh, pay me now or pay me later. Oh, that's a big
0: issue. That's a huge issue. Pay me now or pay me later. So most, most sellers know that phrase or some version of it, and yet as they come into this process of selling their business, they're not always sensitive to the idea that they have all these pay me now, pay me later. And I got to tell you, you should always pay now because the whole process is over in the blink of an eye. I'll give you an example. Pay me now or pay me later. Deal room is where we keep all the virtual documents, right? Well, when should you put all the information in deal room? Well, I'm busy. I won't do it right now, right? But right now at the beginning of the process is probably the slowest time you're going to have in this whole process. So it's pay me now, pay me later. Well, what does that mean? Well, pay me now, it's disruptive right now but it's going to be much harder later when you're in in due diligence here's another one should you bring the team into the room there are many buyers uh, sellers again sorry sellers who will say gee I don't know if I want to tell my team we're selling the company I'm kind of nervous about that mm. it's pay me now pay me later the pay me now if we bring in some members one or more members of the team I'm afraid they're going to be a blabber kitten they're going to tell the whole world it's going to be on the front page of the Wall Street Journal that I'm selling my business so that's the pay me now but that seller's perspective. That seller's perspective. Let's go to buyer's perspective. What does the buyer think if they don't meet the future team? How do they feel about that? Oh, they're kind of nervous. We we had a um, owner of a private equity firm who was selling a company. We sold the company at Woodbridge, and when we discussed this issue, they said, "You know what? I'm out. If I don't meet the future team, I'm out." When we so so of course we could sell the company if the future team is not in there. However, what we're going for is the most robust auction possible to get the most money that we can for our client and to get the most cash on the drumhead right now. We don't want to get paid three or four years from now as a risk mitigating tactic by the buyer. So one way we could get more money now is bring in the team. But that's pay me now, I'm worried, but the pay me later is if we don't bring in the team and the buyer sees risk and does one or two or three bad things for us. Either they don't bid at all or they bid lower and they pay us later on. So it's Pay me now or pay me later. It's seller's perspective, buyer's perspective. We can't tell the seller what to do, but we could give them their options and educate them. Now, I've been doing this exercise. We're at a hundred and second iteration of the training, and I ask this every time as a as a buyer. If you were a buyer and you were buying a business and um, you didn't get to meet um, the future team, but you really love the business, how would you mitigate? So, lots of people say, "I'm out," but then some other people say, "You know, I pay." how much on average over all these years you're going to take a 25 haircut that's what we hear you are going to get a 25 haircut so it's like an insurance premium because sure. the, the, the buyer says well what if things go wrong what if the future team leaves whatever yeah. so you know these are ha- hair-raising eye-opening experiences for uh, sellers uh, yeah and, and you mentioned
1: you know getting the team involved there's one specific um point um in the over 100 and, uh, plus uh, training sessions that you have coordinated what other specifics have you found
0: to be the most important takeaways? Well, let me think now. I I taught today enough. (laughs) Uh, Pay me now, pay me later is huge. Another big one is selecting the right lawyer. Selecting the right lawyer. Now, most of the sellers or clients, this is their first or at most second time that they've sold a business. So they don't have a lot of experience in picking a lawyer. Very often what they'll do is they'll go to their corporate lawyer. And that's fine if their corporate lawyer has the requisite it experience. Well, what does that mean? In the first instance, it means they've you know, they've bought and sold at least 50 companies, so they understand both perspectives, and perhaps more importantly, they know what is market. Because if you pick a lawyer who hasn't done it, and the opposing lawyer is a high-end registry lawyer MA, M&A, they're going to run right all over you. So that's the first issue is, do they have experience at all? Another issue is, are they wedded to the Woodbridge timeline? So our timeline is critical to try to prevent the old moniker Time kills all deals. So we want to close on the drop dead closing date. Now we had one example. If I could briefly tell you, I can what could happen. We had a lawyer who knew better. Mm. The lawyer, friend of the client, that's the seller. Yeah, he's telling the client how things should be because I've been doing this for thirty years. I know how to do deals. But this person was not wedded to the timeline, so we blow right through the drop dead closing date. What happens next? This client has two large warehouses. One they own. One they lease, or it's it's a showroom, rather, warehouse. Now, the one they lease, there's a clause in the lease that if they um, if the landlord wants to sell the building, the landlord has to give two years notice. So we blow right through the drop-dead closing date because the client's lawyer knows better. The client's lawyer knows. And what happened? We get a notice from the landlord they're going to sell the building in two years. What's the outcome? On a $9 million deal, it was a smaller company, we got to put a million dollars in escrow to pay for moving the, build, uh, moving the business two years out. It's totally unnecessary, but the lawyer knew better because the lawyer's been doing it for 30 years. So that's an example of what happens. Uh, we have a myriad, unfortunately, of, of examples, and by picking the right lawyer, we could avoid that. Uh, picking the right lawyer, huge issue. Uh, bringing your team in, huge issue. And thinking like a buyer, thinking like a buyer. You know, we have heard over and over again from buyers, and in preparing for the um, preparing for the program, I interviewed the managing partners of many private equity firms. I went out in the old days when used to do it face-to-face and we hear over and over again, if the culture is toxic, we could never love the business enough. Nobody wants to buy a toxic culture. So then the problem begins, becomes how do I convince you, the buyer, that I have a good culture? Mm. Is it because I could say, you could trust me, I'm an honest guy? That's not going to work. That's why it's so important to bring in the future team. Absolutely. And so that's buyer's perspective again. Yeah. And, and, and so it's buyer's perspective. Bringing the team is important. Future story. Another thing really important. We just had a training where the seller's perspective was the next six to eight months. And so we, you know, we, we would say, okay, but, you know, the buyer's perspective is they want to get a certain return over the next three to seven years. And this seller at the starting gate, all they could think of is the next, because that's how they run the business. So it's seller's perspective, buyer's perspective. And we worked on getting a future story. What is the future? look like an extreme case we had a client we got an ex i think we got 60 million dollars u.s it was a canadian company they made they had one product that they sold to one retailer uh, the retailer was costco uh, canada now that's a, a a very high concentration risk right, right. But we found the scenario with a future story what was the story it was a, a, a u.s based company that was a vendor of record at u.s retailers so as soon as they bought the company they could start shipping that product to all their retailers so this is a critical critical point what is the future story and most sellers who come in haven't given it a ton of thought it's excellent I mean being able to
1: dive into that and, and get it again those nuggets that's where i think a lot of them come from is is that deep dive into the future story thinking like a buyer and getting into that mindset you know be prepared and getting information into the data room as early as possible and, and surrounding yourself with the right people
0: i think those are really the i mean the one thing we haven't discussed extensively is this issue of risk the right. buyers perceive risk and how do we mitigate risk so that's like another big issue um that we cover in the management meeting training Bu- seller's perspective i got no risk right but you know buyer's perspective tons of risk. So, how do we minimize the perceived risk? That's another issue we cover extensively, and and we and we get into things like: Do you have a defendable position? Is there uncontested space? And yeah. and then, if I could go back to the sales training for a moment, sure. We all know that an essential part of selling is fact finding, right? Well, when you're doing your fact finding and discovering the closing conditions, the must haves. A question there is: Is it a defendable position? In other words, if we meet all of these must haves, does that make us? Unique? unique enough so that, you know, they're going to bring us in or we're just plain vanilla like everybody else. So that would be an example of something that came from the sales training. Yeah. And I I, I I, tweaked the idea as we brought it, you know, in, into this MF management meeting training program to, to to show, to focus on uncontested space because that's going to make a buyer feel more comfortable. And then, uh, Andy, in addition to the management
1: meeting training, you've also authored a couple of books for it you. you share some of the insights or takeaways from those books that
0: have resonated with readers. Any clients? Well, I happen to have one of them here, Biggest Picture. And the other one, I think, is entering the buyer's mindset. And um, to kind of make it fun, I wrote it like a novel, like there were different people going through experiences. And, and I did side-by-side case histories. This person did it right, and this person not so much. And what happened, and how, how we learn. We learn as we go through life. I, I think one of the biggest takeaways for me in writing the books is in order to make them cogent, I had to do a much deeper dive into Woodbridge, into the Woodbridge experience and culture. And I, I, I I had to interview all the partners, all the closers, so that I could, I could base the book in fact, right. it, or, or if not an exact fact, at least, like I wouldn't replicate a case and say it was, you know, this company was company X, I would say, but I learned the fundamentals. I learned, I came to have a deeper appreciation of the fundamentals that underlie why does this work? Why does this not work? And then I could imbue that into the training. And the other thing okay. that I, I left out that I think is kind of important is when we have two or three uh, clients going through the training, we're talking about 16 to 20 hours, two days straight. That's a long time, you know, to sit. So another part of this is we try to make it fun. Mm. In fact, I developed this fun line. You know, we have the partners come in Mm. to say hello at the beginning, and when Robert, our CEO, comes on, I tease him and I say, hey, Robert, can I I do the fun version? And he says, yes. I said, you know, Robert, that costs more money. Mm -hmm. So we try to make it fun, yeah. With stories, with videos, and so on. For sure. It's a challenge to hold the you know entrepreneurs by their nature don't have long attention spans. Squirrel, squirrel. You know, it's like <laughs> right. Wow. And and I think that we've been able to design a program where people re- recurrently say to us, "Wow, it's hard for me to sit, but I you kept me through the whole time." So that's another part of this is how to make it fun and yeah, influencing people. It's educating, but also coaching them to the right position. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Exactly. And and last. Honestly, I, I think one thing uh, we want to just hear more about is, is what motivates you and, and drives you to continue your work in sales training and consulting and, and what you find most rewarding about helping sales teams and business owners and sellers um, achieve the results they, they once maybe considered impossible to attain.
0: Well, there's another piece of my life I'll just briefly introduce. About 25 years ago, because of my interest in philosophy, I started my first philosophy club. And we're on a reboot for the last two years. But basically, every three, Months or so for the last twenty five years, this very small group. I think we have six now. We read a work of philosophy and we discuss it. So, for instance, we use Kahneman's Thinking, um, Fast and Slow. You know, in the training that came from math, that came from Philosophy Club. Right. So, I have been studying philosophy for a long time. It's one of my passions. I imbue it. We talk about um, Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics as an example in the program. This comes from Philosophy Club, and one of the things that I realized from this journey I've been on for over, well, it's more than 25 years, but in Philosophy Club, is that what is essential for us is having an open mind. And what what sets civilization back is the closed mind, and what moves it forward is the open mind. And I feel that what we do in selling is we open the closed mind. That's what we do. And so my view of the work I do, what really turns me on, is every day I work in a tiny little way, when I open closed minds, I'm pushing civilization. Forward. Our civilization that we enjoy is a mm. function of the open mind. And so my job is helping people open their mind to possibility. And that's what turns me on. That's why I love what I do. And insofar as Woodbridge is concerned, and why I really love this assignment, you know, I'm a very small part of a very big operation. But with the management meeting training, here we have entrepreneurs who, in my mind, are the heroes of our economy and our culture. I think they're the mm. source of, um, you know, future positive change with all the right. ills in our society. It's going to come from entrepreneurs or not from politicians, maybe from entrepreneurs who become politicians. And it doesn't strike me as reasonable that an entrepreneur has done such great work their whole productive life. They come to the end of their productive life. They're ready for a transition and they have an illiquid asset. You know, we once I right. think had a client to polish concrete for a business. What's <laughs> the market for a business that polishes concrete? And what I love about Woodbridge so much is is that we help create liquidity and we make it more reasonable for the heroes of our culture and our society and our economy, the entrepreneur. Right. And so that's another piece of what motivates me over here. And it's not a tyranny of the or. Well, Andy, is it one <laughs> or the other? Because I think that when we do this work, we're opening minds, we're teaching, we're educating the um, sellers and they're seeing new possibilities. And so on one level, we're opening the closed mind or just educating people. But on another, we're helping make it reasonable. Reasonable. It just doesn't seem reasonable, and so I find this work highly fulfilling as a result. Wonderful. Well, that's great. So that was everything that I had planned to ask. Is is there anything else that you wanted to touch on? Otherwise, no, no. Except, uh, I. Any listener, I recommend the three key values: urgency, do or die, and creative, out of the box thinking. I set for myself. I'll, I'll end here. I set for myself the, the standard of testing at least two new ideas a week. At least two new ideas. Mm-hmm. I've got a special garbage can here for all my bad ideas. So I'm not attached to bad ideas, but if I could just give one last like comment to anybody who's listening, I have over 160 best-selling practices I teach, many of which I brought into the Woodbridge program. Well, How did I create them? I have one sentence I offer you as a concluding idea, and this is it. If everything I'm doing right now doesn't work, what's my next move? That's how I've created all this mm-hmm. stuff, by nonstop brainstorming, by, you know, a Assuming worst case scenarios, and then creating new stuff. So if there's one takeaway um, for any listener, I would recommend this one sentence, live by this. If everything I'm doing doesn't work, what's my next move? Great. All right. Well, Andy Gold, president and founder
1: of Bombadil, thank you so much for joining us here and uh, appreciate the time and uh, all
0: the words of wisdom. Thank you for this opportunity to share. I had a ball blast here today. Great. All right. Thank you for listening to another episode of Secrets to Selling Your Business, the podcast for entrepreneurs and business owners looking to unlock the secrets behind successful business transitions. We hope you enjoyed listening to this week's guest and their insights. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts.